Today I'm with Megan Johnson. She has a Master of Music in Voice Performance and is a certified teacher of the Alexander Technique. Hello, Megan. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. Yes, I have heard about the Alexander Technique, but I don't really know much about it. So can you give us the lowdown? Absolutely. So the Alexander Technique helps people learn to move with more ease, to have improved performance in arts, uh, athletics, general well-being, um, and also improves our peace of body and mind. So it's mind-body education, and it has been shown in studies to be effective in reducing chronic back pain and chronic neck pain, as well as um, being extremely useful for people who use their bodies, which is all of us, but especially musicians, actors, dancers, dancers. A lot of very well-known actors swear by Alexander Technique as a way to use their voice and improve their performance when they're in in movies and film. How long has Alexander Technique been around? It's been around uh, just about 100 years. So it was discovered or originated or invented, however you want to look at it, by a man whose name was Frederick Matthias Alexander. He lived uh, in the late Victorian period, early 20th century. He was an actor by training, and Alexander had chronic voice loss during performances, and all of the doctors in Sydney, Australia, where he was living and working at that time, suggested he do regular things, rest his voice, drink tea with lemon, but none of them worked long-term. He would be fine until he would get on stage, and then his voice would go away again. So he realized that it was something he was doing himself, and over time realized that he had a pattern of chronic tension, of habits of holding his neck, of holding his feet, of the way he was using his back that were impeding and restricting his voice. What started as originally a a voice and breath technique for actors soon became a way of working with sort of what doctors considered their unsolvable cases. We have a person with with a chronic illness. We don't know what to do with them. Try, Try your workout, Alexander. And people's health improved as they started to release patterns of habitual tension and found more ease of movement, more freedom in their joints. So uh, people today find it to be extremely helpful for when you sit at a desk for long hours. Um, How do you sit at your desk? How do you type at your computer? How do you use that little tiny mobile phone that you have in front of you? They find it helpful in gardening, in running, um, Anything you can think of, I can tell you how the Alexander Technique will help you do that with more ease. Unless you're born with a specific birth trauma, I would think that as an infant and as a small child, you would move with ease. Absolutely. That changes. Right. It changes because we develop our own particular habits around the way that we sit, the way we stand, the way we move, those are unique to each individual. And so when you come for an Alexander lesson, a lot of people think it's about posture and they expect to be told how to stand or how to sit in a right position. But because every body is unique and every person is unique, it's less about a right position and more about stopping the things that are harming you. If you are using extra tension in your back when you're sitting, we help you figure out how to balance over your sitting bones so that you don't have to use effort to stay sitting upright. Uh, If you are having back and neck pain, we help you learn how to use 
ease in your muscles of your back and neck so that you are not contributing to the the pressure in your spine that might be giving you pain. When people stop moving with ease, Mm -hmm. which could be, you're saying, from stress. Absolutely. It could be from injury. Mm -hmm. From imitation, from any number of things. Right. And and just maybe general bad habits, Mm -hmm. which we all have. Right. How, how do you gain that kind of awareness? That's a lot of the work of the Alexander Technique is improving a person's kinesthetic awareness and their proprioceptive sense, which is our sense of where we are in space. And um, at first, you may not notice the things that a teacher will be pointing out to you. Um, a very common experience in an early lesson is I will um, work with a person to help them be seated, balanced over their sitting bones, and they'll say, I know that I'm slumped over. So I'll ask them to turn their head and look in a mirror. I often work with a mirror, and they will see that they are, in fact, sitting perfectly upright, even though their body feels slumped over. So our brains are calibrated to our habits. And whatever we do normally feels normal. When we start to change those habits, it feels unfamiliar. It might even feel wrong. But as we're learning to change, being willing to sort of stay with those slightly unfamiliar movement patterns helps them become more familiar and in time normal. When somebody comes in with pain mm-hmm. and you're ta- you talked about chronic back pain, absolutely. Where, where do you start? Well, so... The wonderful thing about the Alexander Technique is it looks at each person as a whole. So if a person comes to me with um, chronic pain in their elbow, maybe they are a violinist or a tennis player, I'm going to start looking at what is happening in the head, neck, and back relationship because that relationship guides our movement. Wherever our head goes, wherever our spine goes, the rest of us goes. So I look at people as a whole. And usually as we start to sort out what's happening in the neck, what's happening in the back, what's happening in the hips and legs and pelvis, things that are arm problems, so to speak, start to sort themselves out. I use the exact same process working with someone who has chronic back pain, who has uh, hip pain, who may be experiencing chronic headaches. I always look at them as a whole. What's happening in the spine in the relationship between the head, neck, and back. And then we work out from there, learning to do all the things that that person already does in their life with more poise, with more ease, and without the tension that's causing pain. I find myself sometimes in the car driving, and I realize that my whole head is pushed forward, Mm -hmm. and I'm not resting it against the headrest. Mm -hmm. I would imagine... Millions of people do that. Mm -hmm. So you can sit in a car with what Alexander teachers call good use. And we talk about use rather than posture because it talks about it's a conscious choice of how you use your body rather than an unconscious position. So you can choose ways to sit in your car with good use. Now, some car seats are easier to sit in than others. Um, But I often work with students at their cars. How can they sit in their seat with the most poise, with the most support, the most ease, so that they are not in pain, not pushing their heads around, not pulling on their arms and shoulders? So tell me, the next time I get in a car, 
what should I be thinking about? What I'd ask you to think of in a car is the same thing I'd ask you to think about at your desk. First notice where your sitting bones are. So for those of you who don't know where your sitting bones are, they are the two bottom points of your pelvis. Our pelvis has two rockers on the bottom that if you're sitting on a hard seat chair or you're sitting on the floor, you may feel them supporting you. So when you're sitting in a car or whether you're sitting at your office chair or your dining table, notice where your sitting bones are. From there, notice where your back is supported. If your back is supported on the back of the chair, great. If it's not supported, that's okay too. You don't have to lean back on the chair and you don't have to sit away from the back of the seat. Notice what's happening in your knees and your feet. Notice if you're holding tension through one leg or the other. Notice if you're letting your feet release to the floor. Notice if you're holding tension in your arms. And also notice what's happening at the base of your head. So if you take two fingers and you put them in the little hollow behind your ears and they could meet in the middle, that's where your skull balances on top of your spine. So way up there, yeah. So if you're in a car and you notice that you're chronically holding your head back and down, you may be sort of, you know, jutting the chin forward and starting to collapse. And that is, as you said, it's not comfortable. So notice what happens instead of trying to fix it. If you think of what happens if I don't pull my head back and down, could I find more ease there in the back of my neck? And between your sitting bones and your neck, you have a nice long spine with lots of space. Same thing, no matter where you're sitting. Megan, I get the sense that you'd like us all to slow down. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of the things that I tell students is we all have time to say to themselves, I have time. Often we are already on to the next thing before we've even done the thing that's in front of us. And that kind of rushing contributes to tension. It contributes to um, hurried thinking that causes us to miss opportunities for choice and opportunities for potential. When we are in the middle of an activity, whether that is cutting up carrots for dinner or driving in your car or going for a run, all of those things may be happening quickly, but there is time for you to be attentive to what you're doing and how you do it. So um, in the class that I teach at Indiana University Jacobs School of Music, I often have my students do an assignment that is completely unrelated to music, or so they think. I ask them to take a regular everyday activity and apply the Alexander Technique thought process, which is to pause, to become aware of what you're doing, or to notice what you're doing, once you've noticed it, not to try to fix it, but just to say, could I, could I use less effort? And then choose what you want to do next. So, for example, um, I just got these assignments back this week, so I, they're, they're fresh in my mind. Somebody's making coffee. You, you get your coffee out of the cabinet, but you would stop. You would say, oh, how am I going to get the coffee out of the cabinet? I'm going to allow my neck to be free, to let my arm reach up, to open the cabinet door, to get the coffee down, to set, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We go on through all the steps, but there is a lot of time and a lot of choice. 
The Alexander technique in some ways has a lot in common with mindfulness practice. It, um, could be considered an embodied mindfulness practice because you're not only attentive to your thinking, you're attentive to how you are in your whole self, which is body and mind together. We, uh, Alexander teachers, don't separate between our thinking and our bodies because the two really are so unified. There is no separation between what you think and what you do when you start to get down to the root of it. The students that you work with at Mm -hmm. the Jacobs School, and I would imagine there are other performers outside of the school that you work with, Mm -hmm. what changes for them Mm. on when they are performing? What I notice is that when students that I'm working with can get rid of the idea of having to be right, of having to be perfect, of having to be the best. These are all things that um, musicians, especially in highly competitive environments, are always trying to be the best, trying to be perfect. Often when someone gets rid of that fear of being wrong, it opens up possibilities to make music that they never imagined they could make before. New sounds that sound more rich, more beautiful than the sounds they were making before, which were very good sounds. But when they when they are able to rid themselves of that fear of being wrong or the fear of not being perfect, often it loosens up something in them that helps a more beautiful sound come out. How does the Alexander Technique do that? When we have a preconceived idea of what has to happen, we often use what we call a postural set. So we hold our bodies in a particular way with the anticipation of doing a thing in a certain way, whether that's cutting carrots or playing the violin. We, we can use a postural set. That postural set limits us because we can only make the sounds that we've already made before. Um, F.M. Alexander has a, a great little quote that says, you can't do something you don't know if you keep on doing what you do know. So you can't make a new sound that you've never made before. You can't necessarily improve your running or improve your dance in a really vital way if you keep on practicing it the same way you've always practiced it. For performers and for myself as as a singer and as a choral conductor, I notice that when I get rid of the idea of having to be right, that my use, the way that I use my body frees up, my thinking frees up, I'm more attentive to the process. And there are all these little moments in the process where I can make choices or leave room open for possibility that I wouldn't have left open if I was afraid of having to do it right and using my preconceived idea of how to, how to be right. But Megan, it's so much fun to be right. (laughs) Isn't it? It's, it, you know, it's a lot of fun to be right, but what I've learned is that there are often a lot of things that are more fun past that having to be right. Flexibility, open mind. Absolutely. And so for violinists, say, or for singers, if you are needing to be right, you might be holding a subtle amount of tension in your shoulder blades. The shoulder blades are right over the rib cage. The rib cage includes our lungs. It includes our breath. So if you're holding a subtle amount of tension in the shoulder blades needing to be right, you're restricting your breath. 
you're restricting the way that breath can move or you're restricting the way your arms can move. So our thinking that I have to be right, I have to be perfect might be causing us to use ourselves in ways physically, quote unquote, that restrict our ability to do the kind of performance we want. Whether you're a professional musician, singer, athlete, or just anyone, we're all so goal-oriented. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a huge component of the Alexander Technique. There is a concept uh, that we call end-gaining, or rather Alexander called it that because he was in the early 20th century. But the idea that we put our ends our goals ahead of the process. And when we are end gaining, when we are trying to get to our goal at the expense of everything else, we sort of have blinders on. We uh, lose sight of not only why we're getting to the goal, but all the possibilities that could get us there with more ease. Um, Contemporary neuroscience is showing a lot of this same understanding of how we learn, that if we are practicing things slowly and attentively, rather than quickly and repetitively, we're actually creating stronger neural pathways in our brains um, by doing slow, conscious repetition, um, or maybe not even repetition of practice in, in a lot of different ways, rather than trying to rely on muscle memory, as we might call it. I, I hear similar things from other practitioners, for example, Feldenkrais, sure. or art therapy, or mm-hmm. dance therapy. We really need to have a shift Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a revolution you're involved in, Megan. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Alexander Technique um, has not only helped me alleviate, I, I was in pretty good shape before I started Alexander Technique lessons, but I came to it to help me with my singing. I was having technical difficulties in my singing that I couldn't muscle my way through. Um, what I didn't expect is that studying the Alexander Technique would not only help my singing, it relieved uh, chronic headaches. It um, completely eliminated temporomandibular joint tension. That's your jaw joint, TM joint. Um, And it made me more patient, which I never expected. But once my nervous system was able to calm down a little bit, I realized that I had a lot more choice than I thought I had. And so Alexander Technique really helps us be present to the opportunities in the moment for how we move, how we stand, but also how we think, how we process information that's coming at us. Um, It really could be sort of just our response to life. It's how we choose to respond to life. I like what you said about calming down your nervous system. Mm -hmm. I don't think we all realize how agitated mm-hmm. we are mm-hmm. because we we have habituated all of these things that we do on Absolutely. a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. Now, I mean, if you look back at history, people have been saying for thousands of years, the pace of life today is so much busier than it used to be, and this is going to be terrible for us. Um, but it really is true. The way that we the way that we interact with the stimuli coming at us, whether that is driving down a busy road or um, having 50 new emails at every hour, depending on what your, what your occupation is, 
the way that we react or respond to the stimuli that are coming at us determines the pace at which we will live our lives. So we can either respond quickly and freely, or we can respond quickly with stress, or we can respond slowly and freely or slowly with stress. So we get to choose. The Alexander Technique is not only about slowing down, although once you realize that you can slow down, a lot of people find that it's really nice (laughs) and they do slow down a little bit. But um, Alexander Technique is sort of like uh, life as a martial art. So you can be responding very quickly to a lot of stimuli coming at you with ease, with freedom, with choice. And that means you can be a busy executive. You can be um, a busy parent. You can be uh, running a marathon or doing gymnastics. All of these things that are fast-paced activities can be done with ease and freedom when, when you have a way of thinking about how you use yourself. When someone comes to you, are they coming for uh, one lesson or a series of lessons? Sure. Uh, The research backs up a series of about six lessons as a foundation for lasting change. Um, So I encourage people to try at least three before they decide whether it works for them or not. Alexander Technique is best learned one-on-one. So people come in for an individual lesson and we work with simple everyday movements, sitting at a chair, standing, walking, lying down, getting back up again. All of these things that people do every day because sitting in a chair is a pretty low stakes activity. Most of us aren't really concerned about sitting in a chair. So it's a great place to observe what are my habits around how I use my head, neck, and back? What are my habits around how I think about getting out of a chair? It, it reveals a lot about a person to, to know how they get out of a chair. Are they jumping ahead and ready to get out of the chair before they need to? Or are they really overcommitted to sitting on the chair? There, you can <laughs> learn a lot about a person um, just by how they sit and stand in a chair. So um, we work with that one-on-one, and I encourage people just to to come for a short series of lessons. A lot of people keep going for for quite a number of lessons because it is a great self-care practice. And they see improvement. They see improvement. They notice that things are getting easier. Um, I've had surgeons who've come in and said that it has helped their surgery technique. Uh, So a lot of a lot of people find that their individual skills are improved by learning how to use themselves in a way that is easy, that requires less effort, and gives them more space for possibility. It's very cool, Megan. If someone is interested in contacting you about the Alexander Technique, what's your website? Sure. It is sound-direction.com sound-direction.com. And I would like to just do one uh, more thing with you. You are the director of the Indianapolis Women's Chorus. That's right. Tell me about that. 
Sure. So the Indianapolis Women's Chorus is a community chorus. Uh, we're made up of about 60 women between mid-20s and into their 70s. So we have a wide range of folks. We sing music that gives voice to women's lives and experiences, regardless of source. So that might be world music. It might be music by women composers. It might be contemporary Broadway or jazz Um and it's a really fun, really challenging, uh, really welcoming and warm environment. So whether a person has absolutely no prior experience or whether someone is a music professional, um, I have been told that, that people find challenge and also comfort and joy in being in the women's chorus. I've heard the Indianapolis Women's Chorus, and I think you are doing an amazing job. If Thank someone you. is interested in being in the chorus sure. or coming to a performance, what's that website? It's IndianapolisWomensChorus.org. All together, IndianapolisWomensChorus.org. That is very easy. Megan, I deeply appreciate you being on the show. I, I hope you feel that we did this with ease. Thank you, Alex. This was really fun.